1: We're broadcasting across the world in this, our ninth year from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, and this is the place where technology meets entertainment. Now, probably the most used name in our house on a day-to-day basis is Alexa. Alexa's our home voice assistant from Amazon. A lot of people have got him. Alexa's built into half a dozen devices in our house. In any room of the house, you can ask Alexa to do something and she'll hear you. Alexa, turn on the kitchen. The lights in the kitchen come on to a predetermined color. You can also determine how bright you want them. Alexa, play the best Christmas songs of all time in the living room. And presto. A playlist from Spotify with the best Christmas songs of all time plays through the soundbar in the living room. Alexa, add milk to the shopping list. And bingo, milk's added to the shopping list. Now, they're all basic Alexa commands, but she's capable of so much more. You can ask her loads of different questions, no matter what question you ask, and she'll do the best to find the um the answers for you, like um, Alexa, what theatre near us is playing The Irishman? What time's it playing on Thursday evening? You know, simple questions like that. Use it all the time. Google's got their own through Google Home. Apple has their own voice assistant called Siri, and Samsung has theirs with Bixby. They're all pretty much the same but no longer is it a prerequisite to hook into a computer and search with a keyboard for information you simply ask one of your smart devices and the growth in voice assistance and voice search is rapid by 2022 it's estimated that amazon's dominance in the voice enabled smart speaker market Will grow to fifty-five percent. That's up from thirteen percent just last year. Now, if you um, if you've been watching all the sales over um, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, now they've got Green Monday, which was yesterday. You'll notice that voice-activated and voice machines are being advertised constantly. It's estimated that voice shopping will reach $400 billion. Now, this is the frontier of e-commerce and market opportunity. Take for instance, the pre-Black Friday sales that Amazon had going. In the lead up to Black Friday. Amazon had special deals on their own smart voice-enabled devices, but it was very clever because there was a catch. You could only take advantage of these super deals by ordering them through your existing smart speaker devices. Very clever. So right now, the experience is probably still a little clunky. Alexa doesn't always understand what you're saying, particularly if you've got an accent like I do, but it's a preview of how technology is developing inside the home. What we experience now with voice search, voice assistance, and voice purchasing, we're at the really early stages of what's possible. You might remember, well, some of us remember, when the iPhone hit the market. It was a pretty advanced feature phone, but it wasn't until the app store launched with all kinds of apps that its potential began to really open up, and the app boom helped to create wealth unlike any other period in history. But early on, it was a little difficult. It was also strange to use. We simply weren't used to it. The very idea of buying something through an app on your phone was sort of hard to wrap your head around. Why buy something through an app when you can just pop into the store to get it? Well, today, the first pa- place that you look for anything is online. doesn't matter what I'm going to buy, I always look online first. And through sites like Etsy, Not on the Main Street, ASOS and Amazon, you can easily, and with a slick experience, get whatever you need without leaving the couch and have it delivered to you in 24 hours. And we got a big party at Christmas and we ordered some stuff last night, you know, like 10 or 11 o'clock or something, and it was delivered today, in fact, this morning. So it's they're pretty extraordinary, the delivery now. So give voice a couple more years and there'll be an increasing saturation of voice-enabled devices on the market. Voice shopping will become as commonplace as buying through an app. Alexa, show me some new T-shirt styles and Alexa will display some T-shirt styles based on previous purchases that you've made and she'll also make suggestions as to what you might like. And this will display on one of your voice-enabled smart speaker screens like Echo Show or Google Home, and you'll see a T-shirt on the screen. If you don't like the one you're looking at, you simply say, show me the next T-shirt. And once you see one you like, I like that one, Alexa, buy that shirt in a medium. And then Alexa will say, Are you sure you want to buy this shirt now for twenty five dollars? I say, Yes, please. Purchase complete estimated deliveries tomorrow at one PM. I mean, how fantastic is that? And how easy is it getting? As e commerce develops, it creates opportunities for businesses to look to smart devices as new e commerce channels. What it means is that companies have got to be progressive in their approach to voice shopping. Companies are always looking for new ways to market their products and sell their goods to consumers. I think the next big opportunity that's going to present itself or has presented itself is through voice. So keep watching. and, And voice and video, I mean, it's fantastic. You can actually use your voice and Watch the, watch the program. You know, I was um, – we were just talking last night about 30 years ago. There was a lot of talk about having um, video phones, but they never sort of happened. People talked about them and talked about them and talked about them. It took a long time. Now you've got video everything. And, uh, you know, you don't even have to have a phone with a cord or any of that stuff. You just talk. Anywhere in your house. <laughs> Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We now have about 1.77, I think, million daily subscribers. That's a hell of a lot of people. It takes just 30 seconds, and every day we tackle a different subject. We talk about advances in medicine and new apps and new technology, electric cars, Hyperloop, um, autonomous cars, blockchain, Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, we talk about the whole gamut. And at the Pritchard Organisation, we love success stories. We love them, particularly unusual ones. And tomorrow's newsletter discusses how Michael Quaranto came to specialise, listen to this, in cleaning eight story tall, $250,000 IMAX screens and he gets $5,000 a pop. And the country's full of them. They're everywhere. So two two decades ago, when IMAX theatres first started to gain steam, Michael sensed an opportunity to corner a very niche market, which is exactly what he did. So catch that story. It's a great story in the Bob Pritchard newsletter. The one information source you can trust for latest up-to-date business information. Now, to receive it, you simply go to my website, which is bobprichard.com, and subscribe. It takes about 30 seconds. And if you want to unsubscribe, you just tick, click the unsubscribe button on the newsletter, and you're gone instantly. You don't have to search for how to do it and fuck around like you do on some newsletters. It's easy. Now, in today's business climate, change happens very quickly. I mean, it's unbelievable. And it's thought of in the C-suite. And C-Speed works on it for quite a while and then it's passed down to the workers. But the change is so rapid. You know, you've got um, automation, algorithms, technology advances, globalization, consolidation, competition. It just goes on and on. So it's no surprise that many leaders wonder how to manage their employees through change effectively. It's a tough responsibility and the best way to handle it is by empowering and inspiring your teams. You know, seasoned CEOs anticipate changes by looking into the future. They scan the environment and study patterns. They operate with a future focus and therefore you know, they when they're ready to institute change They're ready and they understand everything about it. But when they explain it to employees, employees don't necessarily, they don't understand it for a start. They've got to learn very quickly and they don't catch up quite as quick. And what happens is management gets frustrated. So how can leaders successfully share their visions and inspire change in their teams? In my experience, empowering employees not pushing them or telling them, that's the key, empowering. And as you roll out changes, you need the backing of your team if you're going to be successful. There are four strategies that will help you inspire your team to embrace change. One, share your perspective, explain the reasons for change, and then sit back and listen to their input. You'll get buy-in. And when workers feel heard and respected, they're 54% more likely to stay engaged and support these new initiatives. Secondly, create an outline. Give your team an outline of the future, but let them fill in all the details. People really commit to what they create. You don't have to micromanage, just unleash and channel your team's energy. That's it. Be open to resistance. Overcoming resistance might seem appealing, But it just drives the problems underground. Occasionally, those one-time sceptics can turn into your biggest allies. And fourthly, once employees share your vision and act on it, you should get out of the way and let them innovate because they will. Now, change is inevitable, but it doesn't have to be painful or impossible so help your team coalesce around a shared vision and then power them through the hurdles. It will be extremely successful. Now, my guest after the break is Tara Annison, who's Technical Product Manager at the PR9 Network, and she was previously Product Manager at LendingBlock, a securities lending platform for cri- cryptocurrencies and digital assets. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with Tara in just a a moment.
0: You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show.
1: We're over the past nine years. God, that's a long time to be doing this, isn't it? Um, We've given you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people. We've uh, discussed their interesting new initiatives and we we talk to the entrepreneurs behind these projects about the services they provide, the challenges that they've faced to get there and we try to ascertain what it is that makes them tick. What makes these successful entrepreneurs unique? What is it that makes them succeed when 99%, the latest figures from Silicon Valley, 99% of all entrepreneurs fail today. That's pretty scary. Tara Aniston is Technical Product Manager at the PR9 Network. She was previously Product Manager at LendingBlock, which is a securities lending platform for cryptocurrencies and digital assets. And there she was responsible for defining the product vision, the roadmap and feature set as well as creating all user requirements personas and user stories so while at lending block she was awarded the women in it award for young leader of the year so what that means is she's bloody smart and ambitious and dedicated and obviously a hard worker so prior to prior to that tara was Program Manager, Digital Media and Product Owner within the Corporate and Institutional Digital Department at HSBC, which, as you know, is a big global bank. And there she led the ID idea, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, so I won't even say it. Development and deployment of the bank's digital learning platform, Digital Download, which is a triple award winning website which focuses on improving staff awareness of new technologies and digital trends. So now she's at PR9 Network and they provide real time trading and settlement for blockchain based assets held in cold storage. Now, this is whether as long term investment for staking. All for client fund management. Network participants can securely and seamlessly exchange a wide range of digital assets to enhance yield on custodied assets. The network supports the issuing of a wide range of crypto assets, including Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, Ethereum Classic, and Litecoin, with fiat and digitalized asset support to be rolled out in the near future. They're very low trading fees, and it enables high-volume, low-value transactions as well as high-value transactions. Hi, Tara. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network. You are being heard right around the world. It's pretty scary, isn't it?
2: (laughs) Amazing. Thanks for having me.
1: (laughs) It's a pleasure. Now, with HSBC, which I've always regarded as a typical legacy bank, traditional conservative Um, essentially ignoring consumer needs and providing lousy customer service. And uh, I also believe that they've got a limited future going forward. However, you're involved in their digital division. Are they more ahead of the curve than we think they are?
2: I'd say so, yeah. HSBC has certainly spent the last few years really focusing on the digital proposition. As you say, you know, no bank is immune to bad customer service reviews and uh, falling foul of uh, various scandals. So I think the bank was really trying to work hard to improve that image and focus back on the customer. And digital is obviously a key need for that. So the department that I was in specifically wasn't looking at the retail aspect of digital, uh, but the commercial and investment bank proposition for digital. So that's everything from improving the trading system to internal products for staff, such as the one I worked on.
1: Right. So they, they essentially want to use the blockchain to speed up transaction times and uh, decrease costs, while continuing to charge the public the same amount of money.
2: (laughs) Well, I didn't work on any blockchain initiatives specifically, but there were quite a few that the bank was exploring, not only to look at trading. So uh, they had one pretty well-known project they were working on, I think called WeTrade. Uh, but outside of that, they are also looking at blockchain for cryptocurrencies and just learning more about that space, as well as the tokenization element, and just finding out a little bit more about what blockchain could do for the various parts of the bank. So it was quite a lot of exploratory work going on. Are
1: all the banks doing that? Or is HSBC out ahead?
2: All of the banks are certainly interested in the topic of blockchain or cryptocurrencies, whether they've got POCs running or just wider educational programs. They recognize that this is a technology that's here to stay, that is going to be used, and is certainly being used by their customers. So uh, from what I've seen, certainly all the banks are at least dipping their toes in the water.
1: Okay, so you're trotting along very nicely at HSBC. How did you get to be engaged by PR9 Network?
2: So I joined HSBC on the commercial graduate scheme and I did a number of frontline placements there, the traditional bread and butter banking, but for me my interest has always been in the technology side of things Um, specifically Bitcoin and uh, blockchain after coming across that during a third year cryptography module at university. So I left the graduate scheme around uh, a year early and joined my role within the corporate and and institutional team to take on a digital transformation project but there was always a part of me that wanted to do more and go full-time in the blockchain industry so after uh, launching my product uh, second release of the product i decided it was time to go full-time into the industry and that's when i left to join lending block i was there uh, for nearly a year and then had this fantastic opportunity to join the pr9 network and i uh, thought it was a really exciting project and a fantastic time to join so i joined there uh, around about two months ago now
1: i think you're Made a very good calculation there. Um, so what does PR9 Network stand for? Just the words. So
2: it's, yes, it's, uh, it's, it's really a acronym of our co-founders' names and then the age of their children. So it's, it's a bit ethereal we are going to look at a rebranding because oh. we're not a PR network, which we're often mistaken for as well. Sure. So, yeah, there will be a rebranding exercise.
1: That's one way to do it. Yeah. It's not a very good way to pick a name for a company, but I guess it's one way. Um, So tell me a bit about the PR9 network, apart from the fact that the um, founder is an egocentric. Apart from that, how does it work?
2: Yeah, so you gave a a really good overview of it uh, in the introduction, but it's a a real-time trading and settlement network for blockchain-based assets held in cold storage. The idea is that it's the best of both worlds. So you you have the ability to keep your assets in cold storage whilst trading a replicated balance on our network. So we have a traditional open order book for market and limit orders, as well as the ability for direct peer-to-peer transactions.
1: So how big... Do you have to be to be able to use PR9 network? Does this work for um, large quantities of of holdings in, in digital vault or is it for everybody?
2: retargeting the institutional market but the technology that we're building on would easily lend itself to a retail market so certainly something which we might look at adding onto the roadmap uh, in the future but for now as i said institutional markets so the kind of uh, values that you'd expect of institutional clients and also typically mirrors the types of balances that people would hold in cold storage anyway
1: so more and more um hedge funds and all sorts of other people are getting into holding or trading cryptocurrency. Is is it growing as fast as we're led to believe it is?
2: From what I'm seeing, it certainly seems to be. I think um, only this earlier this month, Fidelity put out a report that said 22% of institutional investors had some level of exposure to digital assets. And wow. I, I think that's just going to continue to grow. People want more diversification in the assets they're holding. They want to understand more about the digital assets and and hopefully uh, seeing the growth of them continue. We are obviously coming out of one of the biggest bear markets uh, in crypto's history. So I think, again, it's going to be really interesting to see now as the price hopefully continues picking back up where this leaves institutional investors.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because institutional investors, um, if they go into um, traditional types of investment, they're... Returns are very low. If they go into the stock market, they're really punting with a potential big downslide shortly, um, and and cryptocurrencies showing them a, um, a potential huge growth forward. So it would be smart to put some of your assets into crypto, wouldn't it?
2: Exactly. I mean, it's highly volatile and that's something that we shouldn't ignore. So it's certainly not one to put all of your assets in, but then that would be a a pretty bad choice for any investment class. So I think what we're going to see is more people dipping their toe in the water, having a little bit of holding, seeing how that goes. uh, And like I say, diversifying across as well. At the moment, the concentration is certainly heavily on Bitcoin, Ether, uh, maybe down to Bitcoin Cash, but I, what we'll hopefully start seeing is that diversification out into some of the top ten uh, coins, maybe top fifteen.
1: Yeah, because they're they're the sensible ones to invest in, aren't they? Outside the top fifteen, you real it's really um, um, just picking a horse in a race, isn't it? To a large degree. But
2: yeah yeah certainly i mean it's such an asset market it's only 10 years old as an industry so we're going to have some big winners some big losers there's i think it's over 2200 cryptos in the market at the moment obviously not all of those are going to succeed but like in the dot-com boom not all of those succeeded but you only need a few to come through uh to really kind of see your returns. so i think what we'll see is yeah, certainly investment outside of the top three or five which is where it's concentrated at the moment Some of the projects that are in the top 10 might not exist in 10 years and some that are in the top 100 might skyrocket up. But at least having that awareness and having that diversification of assets across should hopefully make sure that you're backing a winner but you just never know in this industry or investing generally.
1: What are some of the long shots that you've got in your portfolio? (laughs) Uh,
2: Well, I've always been uh, a fan of the protocol levels uh, as well as the products. So I tend to, to spread my holdings across both uh, the products and protocols. I think that's uh, the safest way to do it. But again, you know, it is a a big bet of the unknown. You've got to read the white paper, keep a track of uh, the team, see what they're doing. And uh, I'm certainly nowhere near to being a millionaire yet from any of my long shots. So I wouldn't wouldn't recommend just copying my portfolio.
1: Would I be right in saying that um, if you're sitting out there and you're wondering, um, you haven't invested in crypto, you don't know that much about it, that you stick to, um, to be safe, <laughs> safer, you stick to um, uh, platform type um, cryptos like the the Ethereum's and the EOS's and the um, Ripples and those those types of um, investment.
2: Really depends on everyone's appetite. You've obviously got uh, like Bitcoin, Ethereum, which are the, the classics that everyone knows about, but they are as volatile as as many of the other currencies. If you're if you have slightly more of a, um, a wider risk appetite, then maybe you want to go for some of the, the kind of lower cap coins. But if you're just getting interested and uh, want to test the water, then some platforms and exchanges provide kind of buckets of assets where you invest say 10 pounds and you get a spread across. The top five, or or whatever basket they've chosen. So that can be a good way if you want to dip your toe in the water and get involved without putting too much risk. Um, I have many of my friends are asking me, you know, what crypto should I buy? And I always say, you know, you've got to put in what you're willing to lose it's a highly volatile market certainly don't put too much in to start with because this level of risk certainly isn't for everyone and it's by no means a guaranteed return in fact you'll probably lose more than you gain certainly at the beginning so yeah not for everyone um and yeah you really got to be careful to make sure that you're investing only as much as you're willing to lose
1: yeah i think if you're if you're going to recommend um Cryptos to your friends, there's only one thing you can be absolutely guaranteed of, and that's that you're going to lose your friends.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I wasn't aware, and I haven't come across, which is interesting because I've been in the crypto space for quite a while, I haven't come across um, people offering baskets of coins. That's really an interesting idea. Um, has that been around for a while? It's the first time, and I've interviewed probably 50 people about about various forms of crypto, and uh, no one's ever mentioned that to me.
2: Yeah, so it's fairly recent. I can't remember when I saw it, but um, it's offered by Coinbase. So you put in, say, so 10, 50 pounds, and they give you an exposure across five or however many uh, coins they support. And it really is aimed at the retail market, those that want to get some exposure uh, without the kind of active trading that you'd maybe need on the higher volumes if you're picking coins yourself.
1: If you're going to, if you're going to invest in in coins do you um do you need to can you sit on them or do you need to trade them to make any money
2: Definitely both. So it depends your kind of level of uh, trading experience and your risk tolerance and how much time you've got as well. Some people just want to, uh, in an um, industry term you've heard before I'm sure, but hodl. So just sit on it, hope it rises to astronomical levels. Uh, and others want to maybe day trade, week trade, or, or maybe have a career out of trading the assets. So both can certainly be ways of uh, hopefully generating an income and uh, it depends on the personal level of experience.
1: Yeah, i I found that trading is pretty tricky because you're you, you're never quite sure where where the um, where the top is or the bottom is. Despite all the charts and everything else, it's a hard one. Um, is Bitcoin really um, a great investment because there's such a limited number of them? There's only what 18 million or something at the moment. There's never going to be more than what 23 and a half million. So it's a scarcity value rather than a um, a real, you know, anything that's got any real asset backing to it.
2: Yeah, so it's, it shares the kind of property like gold, I suppose, and there's that scarcity um, aspect to it. But obviously, it's also the first crypto that was around. So it carries some value from that naturally. And, you know, you can't um, forget that it has a use case. You know, people do use Bitcoin to send as a global payment, peer-to-peer, without an intermediary. Sure, so sure. No, there is value in it both intrinsically and extrinsically. Obviously, some people put slightly more weight on one or the other or or dispute it. Uh, But for me, I see Bitcoin as being highly valuable in certainly those three regards. And yeah, like you said, the fact that there'll only ever be 21 million of them means that at some point, you know, you will only be able to get a Bitcoin if someone sends it to you rather than if you mine it yourself.
1: Sure. So what differentiates the PR9 network from
2: other protocols? So for us, we're looking at really focusing on the the network aspect. So that's bringing together multiple custodians. For us, it's really about uh, bringing together the aspect of cold storage and trading something which at the moment you can choose either or so what we are doing is pulling all these custodians in so you don't have an intranetwork you have a network of multiple custodians and you could be a customer with custodian a i could be a custodian a customer with custodian b we can trade on the piano network and our custodians will settle at end of day between them so that's something which we think is really powerful. It's bringing the liquidity out of just one custodian and across a much wider and deeper pool. We're also focusing on choosing a sensible technology. You know, the industry has been abuzz with uh, blockchain for, you know, insert pretty much any use case. That doesn't mean that blockchain is the right choice. So for us, we're really spending a lot of time building down that value proposition and making sure that the tech stack that we're using really solves the problem that we're looking to solve we're also and you know again this is something which uh, we're seeing as a as an industry trend looking at charging ultra low trading fees the exchanges are already starting to do this as well um we think this is really important because it's going to allow high volume low value transactions sure. as well as high value transactions
1: sure so you you deal with people like the vaults and those sorts of people right
2: yeah, so any custodians people have heard of, but we're looking to work with, you know, Vault, Coinbase, BitGo, all the top tier custodians that provide, obviously, a really good service, but high quality security. Right. How,
1: how important is that security? You, you know, I've got um, crypto and I've got it stuck in a number of wallets around the place. Um, is that is that really risky?
2: Yeah, so we've, we've seen hacks already this year. Sure. Um, Binance, what was that? Two weeks ago, Binance around 40 million taken. Um, I think it's billions has been taken over the last few years from attacks, whether it's social engineering or direct attacks at exchanges. So keeping your funds on an online wallet or with an exchange carries the risk associated with that. If you have it in cold storage, then the risk is Hopefully a lot lower in that you'd need some kind of physical attack to to kind of penetrate into maybe the military grade bunker or the multiple levels of security that it's hidden within. So it is a much safer option. The downside of that, of course, is that because it's so safe, uh, it takes a while to get it back out. So if you want to, let's say the price of Bitcoin skyrockets and you want to take your Bitcoin out of cold storage and sell it, this can take a couple of hours and you might lose uh, the potential profit you were looking to make.
1: It's also bloody expensive, isn't it?
2: it? Yeah, it can be very expensive, but I suppose that's that the price you pay for security. Whether you've got crypto or you've got diamonds, and you're trying to store them in Hatton Gardens, that security does come at a premium.
1: Yeah, but if you're, I mean, even if you, it seems to me that if you've got, even if you've got a, and I may be wrong, but even if you've got a million bucks worth of crypto, um, and you use a vault, then. You've got very substantial setup fees, and then you've got a, a reasonable percentage every time you. Um, then I think they charge you holding fees, and then you get um, more fees when you trade. Um, so for somebody that's relatively small, which I guess a million dollars is, then you um, it, it it eats away that a lot of that profit.
2: Yeah I mean there's other options as well so if you've got you know slightly less holdings then there's hardware wallets like Trezor Ledger that provides fairly cheaper services. There's also the kind of ultimate free option which is a paper wallet so you know write your private key down on a piece of paper uh, and, and hide it, bury it, do whatever you want with it but that's Free storage. So depending on how much security you feel you need, your level of holdings that you've got, there's a myriad of d- different options available. And cold storage with a custodian is one. Uh, it's the the kind of most managed uh, in that, like like you say, you know, there's someone there holding it, protecting it, helping manage your transactions. You can put approval processes in place. But if you don't feel you need that, then there are other options that are of course cheaper and and slightly uh,
1: easier. Yeah. So. Who are your target users?
2: We're targeting institutions, so that's everything from hedge funds, family offices. Uh exchanges, high net worth individuals, anyone that has a significant amount of crypto and currently feels that pain of keeping it in cold storage but, but wanting or needing to take it out to be able to trade it. So those are the people that we're targeting with the PR9 network uh, as well as you know custodians more generally because they're the ones holding these assets. They've got customers who are requesting to withdraw maybe you know multiple times a day. That includes fees. It's obviously operationally intensive for them. So having a network like PR9 which allows users to trade their balances on a layer two solution uh, means it's obviously less operational work for them and certainly uh, cheaper due to transaction fees at the end of the day for reconciliation rather than for every single transaction that they're sending out to a client.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we think so too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah obviously. it's certainly
2: an industry pain point. Um, you know, anyone that has crypto and cold storage knows that whenever you need to take it out, you know, you have to go through a process, it's not fast you wouldn't want it to be super fast otherwise you'd probably draw some questions about the security You're, of it, yeah, it sure. costs funds so this really is, is a marriage of the world between security and trading and when we spoke to people at consensus where we were last week uh certainly the the industry generally and everyone we spoke to said ah yes this is a problem that sounds like a really good solution for it. So we certainly think that this is a great time to be kind of releasing more information about the PR9 network and then really building out the proposition.
1: How long has the PR9 network been going?
2: So it has been heavy kind of research and development for the last few months. As I say we've really focused on the core of choosing the right technology stack for right. the problem and also a really customer centred design on the network. So often with technology problems uh, it's it's built from day one, kind of go, go, go. What we've really wanted to do is make sure that we're talking to network participants. Uh, we're bringing together a council. That's everyone from um, custodians through to potential clients, industry experts, to make sure that we're building a solution that's fit for all because it's a network effect rather than just building it for one custodian or one client so that's meant a lot of the early work that we've been doing is really building out the proposition and and making sure that we're building it in the right way Uh, so it hasn't been going for too long but the work that we've done has really been about driving that together and making sure that we start in the best possible way. What
1: barriers um, exist in the blockchain and cryptocurrency industry Um, and what needs to be done to overcome what, whatever barriers there are, so that we get much more mainstream adoption?
2: Yeah, so it's yeah, such a relevant question. I think, to me, and especially with my kind of background in HSBC, uh, it's knowledge. So one thing I really focused on there was building up knowledge and awareness about digital trends generally, but as blockchain is my kind of favourite technology, certainly around blockchain. When people understand it, they're able to apply it in... Uh, better use cases, they're able to see the benefits of it, maybe why it shouldn't be used in certain circumstances. I think 2017 was trying to make blockchain mainstream, but by just applying it to every use case going. And that's really not a a sensible way. So more knowledge and awareness should certainly help make sure that blockchain is hitting the mainstream, but in the tools and products that it's applicable for. I also just think we need more time. You know, it's a 10-year-old industry. It needs to mature. It needs to stabilize. We need to test the use cases, continue innovating and increase awareness. So I think all these, all these things, you know, knowledge and, and time more generally should lead to better uptake of blockchain businesses and products uh, and make sure people understand the technology a little bit more because it can be bit frightening for people. It's complex. You know, I'm very fortunate that I have a math degree. So for me, understanding the technology is probably a little bit easier than someone who doesn't have, you know, third year cryptography to rely on. So I think that should certainly start helping people when there's more knowledge and awareness get to grips with the technology more.
1: So i a couple of few years ago I thought that the um, um, blockchain Uh, Sorry, yeah, the blockchain crypto um, revolution was going to be led by the public. But now I believe that it's going to be led by industry because industry, it's much easier to to educate industry about the benefits of, of the blockchain than it is the average person who keeps reading about hacks and keeps reading about it's a scam, keeps reading about the volatility and, you know, who really don't know much about it at all. So it's going to be the corporations, and funnily enough, it's going to be people like banks that, um, that lead the charge into blockchain, isn't it? Am I right or am I
2: wrong? I, yeah, and I think that makes sense. Blockchain is a, a technology, so yeah. it enables things it enables products new ways of working but it it isn't something that exists in and of itself so you have to apply it somewhere so it makes sense that industry needs this because they need to figure out the use cases where it can sensibly be applied whether that's to save cost on trade as a uh, use of provenance as a uh, real-time trading and settlement network, you know, whatever it may be, it has to be fit around a product and, and that has to be fitted around a user need. So the businesses and the industry should be leading it, but it, it will really be for the customers at the end of the day.
1: Yep. So how do you how do you see the future of digital assets in five to ten years' time? Do you, do you see it um, – Replacing fiat or taking a big slice out of the fiat market because neither of them are really backed by much <laughs> the American dollars
0: exactly American dollars <laughs>
1: backed by exactly nothing
2: <laughs> exactly, and a lot of people forget this you know the gold standard was removed uh, certainly before I was born, so yeah. when people Uh, give the criticism of of bitcoin or any cryptocurrency then it's not backed by anything yeah Uh, yeah, we need to kind of look closer to home of what's in our in our kind of pockets of fear as well for that so i think for me certainly it I don't think it will replace fiat in total, I think it will complement fiat. It will complement the digital currencies that maybe the banks and central banks look at introducing, and it will be an alternative payment mechanism, maybe more so in the developing market than the developed market. Uh, it's easy to look at things with a, a Western kind of uh, tinge on with, on that and say, oh, because it isn't used as the main payment mechanism in the UK, it's failed. But actually, if you look at some of the developing markets, certainly across Africa Bitcoin has a really good use case there in areas where the political climate is troubled or banks are even less trusted as they are in the in the western hemisphere so I think we need to really kind of judge the, the successes of digital currencies not just in one jurisdiction but in the value that they're providing across different industries countries use cases I think though we will see a decrease in the number of digital assets As I said before, you know, there's thousands of cryptos. Not all are going to survive. That's completely unsustainable. You don't want to walk into Starbucks and pay with Starbucks coin and then go next door to, to, you know, Costa and pay with Costa coin. That would be really user unfriendly. So what we'll probably see is, you know, the the top cryptos surviving, maybe some utility tokens specifically uh, that have, you know, really good application coming through and the rest probably dying off. Uh, I do think we'll see an increase in tokenization. So that's across anything from traditional assets, uh, like real estate art to financial products. Yeah, and yeah, that'll yeah. hopefully provide greater transparency, provenance of ownership, as well as, you know, more diversity in ownership itself. So yes. I think there are some really exciting areas. Blockchain, I am incredibly bullish on on how that's gonna kind of hopefully change many industries. I don't think it will replace everything, because it's not a panacea. Uh, But we should see some really clever use cases of it. And we are actually already seeing some really good use cases of it. But some of the value it provides is just getting businesses to look again at their tech stack and see that there's a better way of doing things. And we've seen that in banks where they've tried, say, a POC of blockchain and, and thought, actually, this isn't the best technology to use, but we could just improve what we have by let's say migrating to the cloud so i think that's a really good value that it's brought and we'll hopefully see that value continue over the next five to ten years
1: it's amazing the applications that are using blockchain i've um i know of um a group that's um i'm not sure of the word it that is using it for produce and is now about to go into livestock and whatever so that they can track you know almost down to the paddock in the farm where the product originated and so you don't have a situation where in california we had a um, salmonella uh, scare and they didn't know where the hell the what farm the salmonella was on so all cos lettuce had to be destroyed when um, using um, Blockchain, they could isolate the actual paddock where the um, where the problem was. I've um, got another friend who's um, um, using blockchain with art to protect yes. provenance and, and a whole bunch of other advantages of it. Um, one in Africa that's using it for aid. Um, there are governments that are using it to track welfare payments, etc. So its its is very well, very widespread.
2: Yeah, sure. And I was working as uh, fairly recently on a project out in Hong Kong with a charity there, and they're using blockchain to track workers' contracts. So yeah. the idea is there that um, once, you, let's say, a migrant worker comes over and they sign a contract, occasionally and, and more often, actually, than uh, it should be, they're exploited with the terms sure. changed, and they have no recourse to the original contract because it was either in another language or taken away at the point of signing. Yeah. So this project allows migrant workers to store their contracts on there, and then if there's a dispute, they're able to refer directly to that. And that's been used in many, many uh, countries now uh, around the world and is a fantastic example of how blockchain can be used for social goods. So there's so many exciting projects out there using blockchain to literally transform people's lives, and I think that's really exciting.
1: Yeah, I do too. So where's PR9 Network going in the next five years?
2: Well, we're certainly looking at building out the proposition, uh, working with our council and the network participants to make sure that we're building a platform that is scalable, usable, really user friendly and addresses the key needs in the market, which is security and the ability to trade so for us it's uh, really the next year certainly is about building out the product making sure that it's secure that's something which you know we want to complement the security that cold storage provides with a really secure platform ourselves we're going to be aggressively chasing regulation in the jurisdictions that we're working with and as i said building out a really User friendly product. So for us, yeah, going into builds, uh, working with as, as many custodians uh, as we can in a kind of scalable manner to build out a really useful product, which should you know, hopefully provide a lot of people with the opportunity to trade their assets as well as keeping them secure in cold storage.
1: Tara, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, if you'd like to contact Tara or find out more about PR9. Network, go to PR number nine dot network dot network. So PR nine period network period network. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard radio show on Voice America Business after this short break. Bob Pritchard, straight talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Network, and we're broadcasting today from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. We know it's the entertainment capital of the world, but it's also becoming the technology capital of the world. The growth in technology and and incubators and VCs is extraordinary. Now, in recent times, more and more prominent CEOs have reduced their annual salary to to a dollar. They say, I'll work for a year for a dollar. And we think, oh, that's altruistic. That's really nice of them. They're obviously very confident in their company. Well, don't feel sorry for them because they're conning you. They're giving a little to get a lot. Now, in 1979, Chrysler, I remember this clearly, was in dire straits. In the aftermath of the oil crisis, they were struggling to find capital. They had to address changing consumer tastes. There was a demand for smaller cars. There was increased competition from abroad. And CEO Lee Iacocca, he decided to get money from the government to bail them out. And to show that he was serious, show the government he was serious about turning things around, Iacocca slashed his salary to a dollar That's very nice, right? Confidence in the company. When Chrysler secured $1.5 billion in loans from the federal government, IACOCA was celebrated for leading by example and for exhibiting a spirit of sacrifice. And from then on, the $1 salary became the default PR move among wealthy CEOs looking to broadcast their willingness to cut back in tough times. Hmm. Now, during the dot-com crash in the 2000s, a number of high-profile tech execs joined the $1 club. Steve Jobs slashed his pay to $1 shortly after rejoining Apple, and he kept it there for more than a decade. Many others followed suit, in fact, dozens of them. Today, there's a selection of of the world's wealthiest CEOs carry on this $1 a year salary tradition but today salary only makes up a tiny fraction of total compensation for CEOs modern CEOs money comes in the form of non-cash rewards like stock stocks and options for example and a good example is jeff bezos jeff bezos paid himself a minimal salary of $81,000 in 2018 that's not a huge amount of money but his Amazon Holdings increased by 24 billion. So he got 80,000 a year, but his income went up 24 billion for the year. So the one salary is often hailed as a benevolent act or even a sacrifice, but they're often a financial gold mine. Many CEOs who take a $1 salary are awarded with stock options or bonus packages that far outweigh the foregone salary. One study shows that the average one-dollar CEO gives up six hundred and ten thousand dollars on average in salary, but they um, they gain somewhere around one point six million dollars in various packages, which is pretty extraordinary. Steve Jobs, for instance, took a $1 salary every year from 1997 to 2011. So he just got, in, in all those years, 15 years, he only got $15 in salary. But during the same period, his stock value increased from $17.5 million to $2.2 billion. And Apple rewarded him with a $90 million private check. So just in two thousand and seven alone, he made six hundred and forty seven million from restricted stock holdings. In two thousand and eleven, Larry Ellison paid himself a dollar but netted seventy seven million in other compensation. So they say we'll take I'll only take a dollar, but they're copying money right, left and centre. One of the most frequently trumpeted benefits of the $1 salary is that it aligns the goals of a CEO and the company. You know, I'm I'm incentivated now to provide better leadership and resulting in a stronger company performance and that's great for the stockholders. But in fact, firms run by $1 CEOs see returns on asset and earnings that are 1% per month lower than those run by market-rate CEOs. So CEOs often take a $1 salary for personal gain. They're willing to trade off short-term income to receive a longer-term bonanza. You know, another rationale for taking a $1 salary is that it serves as an excellent publicity stunt and a deflection tactic. So since 1978, CEOs' pay has grown 940% while employees' salary has grown only 12%. Sheesh. And also, performance-based pay um, can be deducted from the firm's taxable income and the CEOs pay less tax than they would have to on salary. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier And it's more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. As I say every week, any bastard can be ordinary. Walk down the street. There's millions of them. Who wants to be like them? Who wants to be that boring and normal? God, go out. Take the biggest bite you can bite. Chew like hell because that way you will always achieve more. In the meanwhile, have a great week continue to be successful because the opposite to success is failure and who the fuck wants to fail this is bob pritchard broadcasting today from los angeles where technology meets entertainment
0: you've been listening to the bob pritchard radio show please join us again next tuesday at 8 p.m eastern time 5 p.m pacific time on the voice america business channel Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.